REM there. What's the frequency, Kenneth? You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we chat with Jason Turzon McSheen about the Bear Together Conference. Sex worker advocate Cheryl Overs joins us to talk about the Victorian government's announcement to decriminalise sex work. And Tanya George chats about her new single. But we do have Jason on the line. Jason, welcome to the show. Hi, James. Good to be here. Great to have you on board. Sounds like the Bear Together Conference was a huge success this year. Tell us all about it. Well, it was the fourth one we've done and the first time we've gone to Adelaide and we still managed to have over 620 people from all over Australia, except from Victoria because of the COVID lockdown. Um, and it was just amazing to be in a public space with everybody from every diversity and every part of our LGBTIQA plus spaces. I'm just glad we got to do it because a week later we would have all been in lockdown and it wouldn't have been possible. It must have had a great energy. I know it looked extraordinary on social media uh, with so many people there talking about so many important issues for the LGBTIQ community. What were the main issues that came up? Well, there were quite a few, actually. Um, The most popular topics were the fight ahead for our spaces, um, particularly things like the Religious Discrimination Bill, um, Young trans people sharing their stories and access to health was really one of the key issues. Stuff for over 55s, we called it SAGE, but um, providing services for our elders and um, senior uh, queer parts of the community. And then multiculturalism and colonialism and how cutie-pock people and um, colonisers, like myself really, I guess, um, how do we work together in advocacy and activism. Um, And there's lots of stuff to do with asexuality, we had the Sex Industry Network, orgs and people as part of the conference for the first time. Um, and there was a lot, a really big focus on the over 55s, which was a really refreshing thing to hear. And we had an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander standalone plenary with 13 um, Aboriginal queer leaders from around the country on stage. And one was zoomed in because she couldn't get through the COVID border restrictions. Uh, and we had a youth plenary for the first time with... Was, which we ended the conference with on the Saturday. It was a, it was really quite amazing, and, and it was truly national, and people from every state and territory, from every um, sexuality and gender identity and, and age group were there. And, and um, it just shows me that we need public space to do this. It also shows me that we're not very good at collaborating still, and we need to have conversations outside of our bubbles. And the way to do that is to bring everyone together, and it was just great to have it at a proper convention centre, in beautiful Adelaide, and uh, it was, yeah, for our fourth one, it was amazing, really. So what were some of the strategies the Indigenous folks recommended uh, for working with them and, and overcoming, you know, the, the terrible, you know, legacy of, of, of colonisation? You know what, it was, um, it, it'll be, we'll have it actually for download and watchable on YouTube shortly, but the Aboriginal plenary itself was um, just wonderful to sit there and listen to these, um, beautiful people from all around the country and know that, um, one, they don't have an opportunity to sit there and just yarn with us all. And they actually even asked questions of the audience in the latter part of that session. But it was, uh, we have to listen. We have to actually get off our backside and um, do the work. And one of the things that, that we've done with Better Together is provide all the space that they require for their voice to be heard, plus provide equitable access for every Aboriginal and Torres Strait person to even attend. And it was wonderful that all four plenaries had um, Indigenous um, self-determined participation, youth, um, SAGE, the older plenary, the opening plenary, and then theirs. Um, and it was just wonderful to see that front and centre, even though it was difficult and it wasn't easy for everybody and it wasn't even easy for the Aboriginal caucus team to 
um, work together and to collaborate together. This is the other interesting thing. We we had lots of identities together over the conference, and um, we've got work to improve just in how we you know, collaborate, listen, respect, and care for each other because there are so many different opinions about everything, and no one's opinion is completely correct or accurate or right. And it's important that we understand there are many, many ways to be queer or to be LGBTIQ, plus including the idea that you know the asexual community have really stepped up and done a big part of the, the, the program now, and people were very curious and keen to learn, just like they've done with our intersex communities in the last couple of years as well, and our transgender and diverse non-binary communities. You mentioned sex work before. Of course, South Australia's currently got a decriminalisation review going on. Uh, it's great that the sex work community was there in force, out there together. What were some of the issues they raised? Well, they highlighted the failures of criminalisation and, and licensing, in particularly in Victoria, South Australia and Queensland, and also highlighted the benefits of decriminalisation for the rights of all sex workers and how they've always been a part of the LGBTIQA plus space and how we, who are not sex workers, um, need to be better allies. And they gave some tips and tools in their session on how to be you know, a better ally. And once again, doing heavy lifting, we've got to learn for ourselves, use the right language, um, and we also provided equitable access for every sex worker who attended the conference. And it was just good to have their voices permeating through multiple sessions over the two days for the first time. Fantastic. Now, of course, the Religious Discrimination Bill uh, is going to be tabled in Parliament, it seems, by Michaelia Cash by the end of the year. I imagine people are pretty concerned about that. Yes, um, and that was one of the popular sessions for people to sit in on that Equality Australia led wonderfully. Um the problem with this bill is that it's, the way it's drafted is it threatens our access to healthcare and undermines inclusive workplaces, schools and services. Um, and these laws will be used to protect religious people um, and give them a licence to discriminate against us in some sort of active way. And we do need to arc up about it and we do need to agitate about it and we do need to make sure that it doesn't pass in its current form. But, the, you know, the best way, sadly, or wonderfully for us right now is to try and get rid of this government. Get rid of this government and this bill dies. Absolutely. And I mean, it's a bit disappointing, isn't it, that the queer MPs in the coalition haven't stood up like uh, Warren Inch has and said, look, you know, I'm going to cross the floor if uh, if this is voted on. Having spent time with Warren, um, it's amazing as a straight ally, he actually does what he says he's going to do and believes in this. And I thought what he'd come out and said the other day was impressive. Um, and you're right, it's, but across party lines, you know, there's dodginess and people who who don't step up when they should, particularly when it's personal, because they have to tow the party platform, and that's not just done with the, the Liberal side of politics. But the reality is this bill is being fed by the religious conservative aspect of the current federal government, and um, there's a lot of work to do to make sure that it doesn't pass. And that was really concerned to people. It's just funny, it just feels like... You start to relax or we work through some wins and then suddenly there's this lovely slap in the face that's coming our way. And the wonderful thing is there was many sessions around where people were talking, listening, forming connections with each other so that they might collaborate with each other. Because the theory of change around our work is that we spend meaningful time with each other. We might like each other, might understand what each other's needs are across all the LGBTIQA plus spaces and communities. We might then want want to work with each other because we like each other and care about each other. And if we work collaboratively because we're better together, we might actually get where we want to go faster. And we cannot do it in our individual identities. Um, There's no power in that.
it sounds like things got quite emotional at times. Yeah, it was, you know, um, and exhausting. And, you know, I, I said to everyone at the end before we finished, because there's still, you know, three or 400 people there at the very end in person, I said, you're all tired because you've done the work. And actually listening and participating and being present and trying to understand each other, particularly when it's uncomfortable when we when we realise how ignorant all of us are in some ways, um, it's hard work. And I really was grateful that people were tired and that they were nourished, but tired because they'd actually spent the time trying to do the work. And we need public space to do that because we get in our bubbles. We get in our social media bubbles and we get in our little bubbles of thought. And if we stay in those bubbles, no matter how good we think they are, we're diminished because... Um, Things are far more complex and not simple than we think they are. It sounds like some lateral hostility within the community was overcome. Yes, but it still happened. You know, there was still, you know, it it wasn't kumbaya, um, but it was worth it. And and I know, you know, particularly in some of the teams across the different spaces, not isolating any of them, there was people are not good at working collaboratively and not good at... at, um, at putting their own agendas aside for the bigger agenda, and it takes work and effort to do that. And so um, while I think there wasn't a lot of lateral violence, I know there was there was still too much um, for our own good. And it's actually not a good strategy to diminish each other and to um, pull each other down. It's actually a better strategy to, to share what each other's doing, celebrate the successes, and then get along beside each other, even if we disagree on some things. Absolutely. Jason, any surprises this year at Bear Together? In fact, we even pulled it off. Um, to, to think that, it, you know, I was worried we had almost 200 people from Victoria were going to come. We couldn't come. We did a streaming option for them. I was worried if we didn't have the Victorian cont- contingent and there was about 10 sessions that couldn't happen from Victoria, that we wouldn't have a conference. But that wasn't true. We had 75 sessions still, which is more than enough. Over 600 people in person and almost 1,000 when you include the online people, that um, it's a truly national conversation and a community of people who are gathering and connecting regularly and, and we head up to Cairns and Port Douglas for next year's conference in January. Um, we're super excited to take the work, the work up to finals Queensland and um, that that was a surprise for me and, and surprised that actually people do step up and it was really quite a wonderful thing in spite of COVID to have, you know, 600 plus people together in the same spaces over three days was, was tremendous. Well, Jason, you should be very proud of yourself. Congratulations and thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. Thanks, James. Always good to chat with you. Likewise. Cheers. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James and here's The Cure with Primary.
one of the greatest Madonna there, deeper and deeper you are, and in your face on 3CR with James. While this week the Victorian government announced that it will decriminalise sex work. Cheryl Overs has been a sex worker advocate and policy expert since the 1970s, and I chatted with her all about it. Thank you so much. I don't think we know a lot at this stage. We don't know what is actually going to be in the bill. The first bill that will go through will be a bill that repeals existing laws and then shores some things up with other related areas of law. So it's a very complex process of undoing some things, matching things up. So it's quite, we don't really know at this stage. We do know that there is a commitment to full decriminalisation that presumably means they've rejected the idea of of licensing um, individual sex workers or indeed uh, sex work premises. So fingers crossed there, but we don't know a lot. Consumer Affairs Minister Melissa Horne has said decriminalisation is the best option for safety and for reducing stigma and fears of criminal repercussions. You must be very, very um, satisfied with that response. Oh, absolutely. And that's been a very long um, process, partly because of the strength of of the lobby groups that argue that sex work is inherently exploitative and inherently violent. And, of course, that used to, when when I was first advocating for sex workers' rights during the 1970s, that was kind of the church and right-wing, you know, um, religious alliances, whereas in more recent times it's been anti-trafficking feminists who uh, promulgate ideas about... um, about sex workers as as trafficking and exploitation. So those organisations have had tremendous power and the responsibility for the shocking violence that's been perpetrated on sex workers over the last um, 40 years since we first had um, an inquiry into decriminalising sex work in Australia is on those sorts of organisations that delayed this process because that by keeping the existing systems in place, we've perpetuated we've, um, violence, we've allowed the likes of Adrian, ba- Adrian Bailey to happen uh, and indeed there's some more going through the court now of similar levels of violence. And that's before we even get started on the other injustices associated with illegal sex work of which there are many. The government said this week that they will decriminalise and regulate through standard business industry laws. That sounds very broad. Unfortunately, I would I, I agree with you absolutely. That is broad. It's perhaps too broad, and I won't relax until I see that narrowed down. And I'll tell you why. It's because there's not just a simple set of business laws that you can go click and the sex industry fits in. That's not how they how it works. Business laws are incredibly complex uh, and the devil's in the detail there. Um, One of the main things that we need out of the law reform is to get all of the sex industry into one tier. As it is at the moment, we have two tiers and sex workers have to choose between the legal tier in which they have much less pay and some protection, not perfect protection, although I must say one of the things that we found out 
in our inquiry last year is that legal brothels are far from free of violence and exploitation. Nevertheless, there's a legality in those brothels or an illegal system which is very unsafe. Now, to do that depends on ensuring that sex workers can operate from residential um, areas, from appropriate residential properties. That's not going to be easy. Uh, The home occupation use that applies currently to some physical therapists Uh, to hairdressers, for example, working from home. Those kinds of laws will have to be applied quite carefully in respect of sex work. And and one of the examples there is that it's legal to work as from a home, in a home occupation use, when one person involved in the business lives in the property. Well, that's not necessarily appropriate for sex workers who don't want clients coming to the place that they actually live. So there's lots and lots of details like that that need to be um, that need to be fleshed out before we can really um, set the champagne corks popping. Absolutely. It's mind-boggling when you think about the number of government portfolios sex work, you know, goes across. I mean, you've got planning, you've got health, you've got consumer affairs. It goes on and on. Oh, that's absolutely right. And one of the things that we did last year in our submission to the Fiona um, Patton Review was we went through and looked at the kinds of laws that other businesses have to comply to, laws and regulations. And I have never in my life come across such an enormous amount of mind-numbingly boring and detailed regulation to comply with. So, yeah, that applies to any business. And then sex work um, on top of it touches so many of those. You're quite right. I mean, you worked on the review in the late 1980s. You had huge input into that. The last time uh, sex work was reviewed in the late 80s, early 90s here in Victoria, Uh, did you ever think this day would come where you heard that a state government here in Victoria was actually announcing decriminalisation? Yes, and in fact, I thought that it would come sooner. Um, Really? Yes, I did, uh, because uh, the models available in New South Wales and uh, New Zealand were there. Uh, I'm quite disappointed that it took so long um, in Victoria. But what I'm also kind of a bit gobsmacked by is to see um, one of the... um, young activists from today quoted in The Guardian um, saying that it's really important to um, eliminate the two-tier industry. That's what I said to the Neve inquiry in 1985. I mean, it is just crazy that we're still having the same arguments. But what I do think is different now is that the um, sorts of lobby groups who work very keen to keep laws against sex work in place have diminished. The power distribution has changed slightly, it seems to me, and organisations like the church, like the Municipal Association and others are not weighing in so heavily in defence of sex work laws these days. And that took a long time, I suppose, for that cultural and political change to take place. Is that why it's taken us so long? Because it took so long for those influences to dissolve? 
Well, those influences dissolve. They didn't dissolve, but they 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 change somewhat in 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 view of you know general cultural and societal changes. Um, but the, unfortunately, the further the, the delay that's been there for here in Victoria and indeed in jurisdictions all over the world is the anti-trafficking hysteria. And the myths around trafficking and sexual slavery and exploitation of children and migrants and so on has been so mythologized, and I use the word myth in in both senses of the word, the idea that some a lot of it's completely false, but also some myths have some foundation in in reality. I'm not saying no woman's ever been trafficked, but the hysteria which is on on the same kind of level as the satanic panic of the 1980s has had a really big impact on how people think um, about sex work. So that in the old days, the sex worker was seen as the criminal and and that was replaced by the victim. Well, neither of those are helpful. The sex worker is a worker. That's what we've said all along. And the things that can make sex work safe, can make sex work decent work, which is a concept um, from the International Labour Organization. Decent work means work that's that's predictable, that's safe, that's clean, where you have some control. To make sex work decent work is absolutely possible, but not under the paradigm of victim or criminal, under the paradigm of worker. I find the timing of this fascinating. The government said they'll table their bill by the end of this year. That means debate's going to be happening in 2022 during an election year. Uh, That's going to up the ante on the politics, don't you think? You know what? I reckon if we do the taxi driver research method, we'll find that the Australian or the Victorian public are really not going to vote for or against the Andrews government on the sex work issue. Absolutely. But I guess I'm thinking also of the Liberal Party uh, engaging in sensationalism with the Murdoch press. Oh, the Murdoch press, the Liberal Party and indeed um, the carceral feminists, the ones who are still pushing the anti-trafficking hysteria and profiting from it, I may say, uh, will always be there. And it will be interesting to see um, how they behave and how far those arguments uh, go next year. But I'm, I'm hopeful that, that, that things have changed and that nobody thinks that it's a good idea to be um, arresting sex workers anymore. And may I just say for listeners, just to be clear, this is a matter of, of, of removing laws that are no longer used, in particular the street laws, um, that are, simply aren't used. It's been years since anybody's been convicted of prostitution in um, in in St Kilda, you know, which is basically the only street working area in Melbourne. So this is a matter of wiping off, you know, laws that have already fallen into disuse in many cases. And of course, you know, decriminalisation will really reflect the reality that so much, you know, sex work is happening on the internet anyway. Oh, yes. And there's a real tension, I think, you know, and I, I've worked overseas for most of my life. I just came back to Australia after after many decades in other countries. And you can see that tension <clears throat> wherever there's legalised sex work between large industrialised brothels and 
the sex industry as a cottage industry. Now, whether or not clients want to go to large industrialised brothels or to small apartments and so on, I mean, the answer ultimately is that there's a client for everybody. We know that and every environment. Um, But really, one of the problems has been that law reform does tend to create these huge um, brothels that are managed by either individuals or, or companies in many cases. So it'll be interesting to see the ways in which that full decriminalisation can realise its potential to enable the sex industry to operate more as a cottage industry, which it seems we don't have hard and fast evidence, but it certainly seems that wherever that's possible, that's what both clients and and workers prefer. Absolutely. And, I mean, the, the benefits to government are quite large when you think about it. I mean, you know, the extra taxation and revenue the government will get through decriminalisation, I imagine, would be nothing to be sneezed at. I really don't know. That's very difficult. That's very difficult to say. Certainly um, disassembling some of the um, expensive and unnecessary um, infrastructure of responding to sex work would be a budgetary advantage for them. That's for absolutely sure. One of the things which particularly interests me is to see services for sex workers improve. I have to say, and I really don't want to offend, I'm sure there's very nice workers and well-meaning people who work for the religious organisations that currently provide services to sex workers. However, it really is problematic. I I was shocked when I came back to Australia and found that the Salvos and other religious organisations are at the forefront of sex worker service delivery now. I think that's outrageous. Uh, Red, the government service, is you know, it seems pretty terrific to me, but it's government's health service. Um, So it's really um, time to shake up, to have a look at how much the Victorian and indeed federal, who put in a bit, uh, Victorian, but primarily the Victorian government spends on services for sex workers and really have a good look at what where that money is going, huge amounts of it are not going to sex workers and to see what the quality of the services are and whether those are the services that are needed. I mean, in many ways the services are um, grounded in um, in social work and the idea of addressing homelessness and drug use and so on in the case of some of the religious organisations and then in the case of RED, they're grounded in AIDS prevention and sexual health, you know, which was very important at the end of last century. But that really needs a good look now at how services are provided and how that money should be distributed and I guess the decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria is going to put further pressure on the banks to get their house in order regarding their treatment of sex workers. Well, I wonder about that. But in fact, um, well, that's an interesting and a technical question because in many cases it's not the illegality of sex workers that allows them, of sex work that allows insurance companies and banks to discriminate against um, against sex workers. What is needed there, frankly, is test cases. It needs people to go to VCAT. It needs people to challenge banks and insurance companies who refuse to provide them the financial services that they provide to other 
other customers. Cheryl Lovis, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And let's hope we have a conversation next year that's in celebration of total success. Absolutely. That would be truly wonderful. Cheers. Bye. Can't do anything right 
trying to do my best, y'all. Help me if I look left now, or if I need my rest. I can't be who I want to be. Someone's ticked off with me, 'cause I'm not made up pretty. Oh, where is Givenchy? I can't do anything right. I, 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 I. What the hell is going on? I must own the blue tone. You just changed my words, son. They are on conclusion. Oh my God, she's a girl who knows how to swear. People say, well, you need to. Equality ain't there. I can't do anything right. I, 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 I. Thing, right, and we do have Tanya George on the line. Tanya, I love your track. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for playing it. I really do love it. Tell us about the writing process and what inspired it all. Yeah, so, you know, I was feeling a bit fed up at the moment with, like, trying to push through with music and push through COVID and all that stuff, and I sort of thought, you know what, I, I just can't do anything right. I just can't, I just can't like, work life out right now, and um, instead of sort of being mad about it, I wrote about it and um yeah so i started writing it on my looper um so all sort of acapella using uh vocal techniques that i do like beatboxing and bass lines and then i laid some harmonies and then yeah this sort of song came out um of what i was feeling i guess literally feeling like you can't do anything right like from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed or you know getting rejected from something or you know can't find the right car spot or (laughs) that's where the feelings come from it sounds yeah. like you're such an intuitive songwriter and that you kind of, you know, start a process and you dig deep and it all comes out. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So um, is this part of an album? Like, tell us about the kind of, you know, journey that this is part of. Yeah, so I have an album coming out uh, next year, which would be cool, or at the end of this year, towards next year. Um, and that's going to be a big compilation of, like, songs that have, inspired me but this song I thought I would just 
you know, I just love the track. And I was like, I'm just going to push this out as a single and just, you know, um, write it out and see how it goes. Because I just felt like it was the right the right thing for a song that's to do about not being able to do the right thing, but the right timing. And it just felt good. So I just went with it. It sounds like you really go with your gut, you know, about what works. Yeah, you got to, especially at this current time. <laughs> Which is amazing because you're so technically proficient. You're so technically trained as well. Yeah, yeah. I've, you know, been singing for a long time. I've had a sort of opera background style of vocal training. So, um, you know, doing opera scales and classical warm-ups and things like that. So I've got quite a large range and I've also studied uh, a good degree in music. I've studied jazz as well. Um, so, yeah, just sort of always want to keep learning and always want to keep um, developing my sound and who I am as an artist and a vocalist, you know. That's amazing. I didn't know that you were, you know, trained as an opera singer. Wow. I mean, you'd, you'd never think that. I mean, you've obviously got a great range. I mean, you clearly have a very kind of low range as well as a high range. Yeah. Um, wow. Tell us more about yeah. your opera training. Well, I worked from a young age with a beautiful, amazing uh, teacher called Julie Edwardson. She's based in uh, St Kilda, where I'm from, and um, I still see her to this day uh, when I get enough time in my schedule. And, yeah, she just... I don't know. She just heard my voice, and she's an opera-trained opera singer, um, but she also does contemporary work, everything. She does everything. Um, but, yeah, and we, we just started focusing on that area and uh, developing my range more and more and more because I sort of had this whistle note register that I had developed quite young, you know, the Mariah Carey high notes breaking the glass sort of vibes. Um, yeah, and my voice was sort of so big that she came in and just sort of helped me control it and, um, you know, kind of make it make it all controlled and, and dense and, yeah, and technically uh, healthy and everything like that. So, yeah, she's, she's a legend. And I just sort of kept going with the opera training as my base and my foundation of what I do. Um, and it keeps my voice really healthy and happy and, yeah, and then I just go off and sing pop or whatever else I do. <laughs> so it sounds like when you were a kid you had this really great voice. Was there a moment you can remember where your parents kind of looked at you and, and kind of went, wow, you know, we've got to do something with this, we've got to encourage this? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so tell us a bit about bathtub. that. I was in the bathtub um, and mum sung something and I sung it back to her, but, like, I sung it back to her louder and you know, more sustained and more in tune. And she was like, oh, that's, that was weird. And, um, yeah, and then I kept singing back all the ads on TV at home as a kid, like Toyota, whatever it might be, like all the all the sort of jingles. And uh, she decided, you know what, I'm going to put this girl in Australian Girls Choir and see what happens. She just put me in a choir and, yeah, sort of started from there. I just didn't stop loving singing since I was about five years old. Wow, now you mentioned jazz before. Tell us about your jazz journey. <laughs> yes, I love jazz. Um, I think it comes from my grandma, my beautiful grandma, who I call Alma in Dutch. Um, she is, was a huge jazz lover and um, used to always play and sing you know, songs to me when I was a kid. And um, yeah, I just sort of fell in love with hearing the, the melody notes that, that were used a lot and old jazz tunes. They're very different to pop now. Um, and yeah, sort of liked the challenge of hitting these weird blues tones or, you know, um, interesting reharms of jazz chords and stuff. And, yeah, decided to study it at uni and uh, sort of take – I take a lot of jazz techniques or um, my ears always drawn to, like, a jazz harmony, you know, like instead of going for a third or a fifth, I hear, like, a seventh or a ninth or a sharp eleventh. And, um, yeah, just sort of 
it's just something I've really got in my heart. Um, and I sort of use the jazz and the improvisation to help build my songwriting a lot. That's what I do with the vocal looping, sort of create songs completely improvised first and see what I come up with. And then if it's a solid idea or it's something that sounds good, I'll just keep developing it and keep working on it, bring it into a song. Are you one of these people that's always kind of, you know, working on a song? I'm always working, yeah. Whether it's on a song, on my voice, <laughs> on the next gig, on the next phase, something. I'm always, always working, yeah. So I guess, you know, because you love gigging so much, I mean, God, COVID must be really frustrating because you haven't been able yeah. to gig. Yeah, it's been hard, um, but it's also helped me um, sort of refocus and reset and really find my direction of, you know, what I'm doing online and, yeah, sort of a lot of reflection during this time. But, gosh, I missed it. I went out for my first um, my first busk, I'm a busker as well, um, yesterday. It's the first time vocalists were allowed back, and it was just beautiful. People were coming out of nowhere, saying hi, buying some merch, buying some CDs, donations and stuff. It was just a really beautiful moment, and just listening and sharing stuff on their social media. So, yeah, it was really fun. So I actually ta- have a show at July 31st. Oh, wow, where? Chapel, Tell us. Chapel of Chapel. Lovely. Yeah, so I'm really excited. It's called Tanya George and Friends, so I'll be playing all my original music and then having some special guests come in and, and doing some stuff with me. Oh, tell us about the special guests. I have uh, a good a friend of mine, Benny Greggs, who's going to come in and play some keys. Um, I'm going to have some wind instrument players, like um, a saxophone, um, and yeah, and uh, hopefully some vocalists from uni that I used to sing with uh, doing some vocal work with me with the looper. So, yeah, nice little range there of, of friends coming in and, and joining the gig. Now, of course, you love making music videos. Uh, is there a music video or will there be a music video for Can't Do Anything Right? Maybe. There's um, talks of that at the moment. There hasn't, hasn't been uh, totally accepted yet if whether or not we're going to do it, but um, there are talks about it. I work a lot with Good Gravy, um, Media, Dylan and Liam from there. And um, But we do have a lot of... TikTok videos that we've sort of been developing and working on. Um, yeah, so we, we might make a compilation of TikTok videos if, if a bunch of people jump on one of the challenges I've put out there. We'll see. So that's the online stuff you've been doing, TikTok? Yes. Yeah, TikTok. I've been trying to get myself in, wrapping my head around it and get myself into it. Um, yeah, just getting myself re-updated with the social media world. Um, you know, there's now Reels and there's like YouTube Shorts and there's all these new apps of uh apps within apps now with uh, music and with videos and stuff so yeah well Tanya congratulations on your new single can't do anything right it's so great that you're going to be doing a gig at the end of the month Uh, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR it's always great to chat with you thank you so much I might see you on July 31st at Chapel of Chapel if you're free for a while I'd love to (laughs) rock along thank you so much cheers thank you so much see you later Bye. bye Tanya George, there you are, and In Your Face on 3CR with James. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street, and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society, and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If 
it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR.
Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.